I heard a story recently about a farmer who uh, one spring had captured a wild duck. It was a mallard, and he, uh, he thought it would be fun to, to hang on to this mallard as a pet, and so he tethered it to a, a stake in his uh, barnyard area, and uh, this mallard was really happy and content all summer. Uh, you know, she had... Uh, she had uh, food that the farmer was feeding her every day and all the other domesticated ducks to play with and, and uh, totally content. And uh, the farmer thought it was great. You know, he had this uh, beautiful new pet. Well, an interesting happen- thing happened. As the end of the summer came and, and fall began approaching, pretty soon the other wild ducks started flying overhead. And this mallard who had been captured just months earlier started seeing all of these wild ducks flying over, flying south. And, and this mallard heard the call of the wild and, and saw her, her uh, kinsman ducks flying south and the mallard began to, to strive and strain against this tether holding her down. And eventually this mallard broke free of the tether and, and flew out to join her fellow ducks heading south. The call of the wild was irresistible. And, you know, as I thought about that story, it reminded me of my prayer for us as a church as we go through this series in the book of Acts. See, see, my prayer for us as a church is that we would hear the call of the Spirit, that we would hear the call of God's charge, his command to take the good news of the gospel into the whole world, and that this call of this grand adventure that God has given us would be so compelling to us that, that like that mallard tethered in the barnyard, we, we would just fight against it. We'd flee. We'd, we'd resist anything holding us back from fulfilling the great mission that God has given us. And so that's my challenge to us. That's God's challenge to us. I want us to be a church that's flying free on mission, that's responding to the call that God has given us. And we find that call here in our series in the book of Acts. Last week we started this new series. It's called The Revolution Begins. And we're looking at this gospel revolution that, that literally transformed the world. God's work in the early church, taking this small band of followers of Christ and, and filling them with his spirit, then empowering them and releasing them to go on mission and take the good news to the ends of the earth a revolution that's been transforming the world for 2,000 years. And God gives us the opportunity to be a part of it. Friends, if you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you, go online, go to our app, go back and listen to last week's message because it's foundational to everything that we're going to look at going forward, foundational to everything that we are as a church. Last week, we looked at the marching orders that Christ gave us as his people. And so if we don't know the command we've been given, how are we going to fulfill the mission God gave us? So again, I want to encourage you, if you didn't see the message last week, if you weren't here, go back and check that out. But today we're going to be moving on into chapter 2. And uh, we're going to see the promised arrival of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that he would be leaving them, but he wasn't going to leave them alone. He said, I'm going to send a helper to you. I'm going to send one to you, and through his power, you will do even greater things than you have seen me do. And today we see that that promise was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and landed upon God's people, empowering them for for this mission that God had given us. 
So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. I want to start out by reading this passage. It's a, it's a longer passage, and I wrestled all week with how to handle this, but this passage is so good. Honestly, friends, this is way better than anything I'm going to say this morning. All right, so we're going to read the passage, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to make some observations about what we see going on in the passage. I want to share some highlights with you this morning. But let's read this together. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 47. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out the Holy Spirit this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an awesome picture, isn't it? A church empowered, led, inspired by the promised Holy Spirit who had come. Well, I want to highlight three things in our passage for us this morning. Three, three key highlights that I, I think really have, a, have an opportunity to encourage us today as a, a church in, in understanding this, this promised spirit that God sent and the reality that, that we have access to this same exact power today. So, so three highlights. First of all, I, w- I want to look at the movement of the Spirit that we see here in verses 1 through 13. Here we find the early church and the apostles waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind, they didn't know what to expect, right? They just know that Jesus had told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise that I am sending you. And so they were obedient and they went and they waited. Friends, how many of you have looked forward to a a big event and and, uh, the day came and it just kind of, fell flat on its face. It didn't live up to its expectations. I, I, I remember, I think back to, you know, my first junior high dance, and oh man, I was so excited. I was going to try to, you know, find Tammy and ask her to dance. She was so cute. She had those big puffy bangs, you know, and she had her MC, MC Hammer pants on, and, and finally that junior high dance came, and I went, and 
Tammy and all her girlfriends were on one side of the gym, and I was on the other side of the gym with all my buddies, and no one was dancing. And I never had the chance to, to go and dance with my, my crush, Tammy. Or I think back to, you know, 18 years ago, 19 years ago, Y2K. Remember Y2K? Everybody was looking forward, you know, not looking forward to, looking in dread, looking forward in dread to, to Y2K. I mean, the world's going to come to an end. And what happened? The clock ticked midnight. And the next day came just like the last day came, and nothing happened. Or, or I think back to how many times we look forward to those Super Bowls, right? I mean, this last year's Super Bowl, are you kidding me? I've been to soccer matches with higher scores than that. But this event, the promised coming of the Holy Spirit, was one of those events that definitely lived up to all of its expectations. I want you to picture with me what took place on that day of Pentecost. Pentecost, by the way, it, it was the Feast of Weeks that was celebrated by the Jewish people. I, I used to think that Pentecost referred to the coming of the Holy Spirit. No, it was actually a Jewish festival. The word Pentecost meant 50. And they celebrated this Feast of Weeks, this 50th festival, 50 days after the Passover. And so Jews from all over the world had come into Jerusalem for this Feast of Weeks, for Pentecost. And I want you to picture with me that first Pentecost that the Christians experienced. Here they are sitting together, waiting for the promise of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, as they're sitting together in prayer, worshiping, praising, waiting in expectation, suddenly the doors of the room burst open, and a rushing wind comes blowing through. And this is the first sign we see taking place at the day of Pentecost, the wind of the Spirit of God. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruah, in the Greek, it's pneuma. And both of these words for spirit also mean breath or wind. And all through the Old Testament, we see God's spirit depicted as this wind, as this breath moving. If you remember in creation, Genesis 1, the spirit of God hovered over the waters. If you remember, we sang the song this morning, dry bones come alive. What is that song about? Ezekiel 37. The prophet Ezekiel saw a vision. He saw the people of Israel like a valley of dead bones, corpses, dry bones rotting in the desert. And the Spirit of God was breathed into these dry bones. The wind of God blew across that valley and brought them back to life. Friends, that was an image of the, the coming promise of the Spirit. That God was going to come and breathe new life into his people. And these early believers experienced that. And they now had within them God's life-giving spirit. They knew more than anyone before them the, the reality of the intimate presence of God living within them. Friends, we have access to that same presence within us as well today. When you become a follower of Jesus, God promises that he will infuse you, that he will blow his spirit into your life, giving you new life, new empowerment. What a contrast here, friends, we see between the old covenant of Judaism and the new covenant of Christianity. Remember, we talked about this this past fall in our series in Galatians. The old covenant was about the law and keeping the law. It was law-focused and law-directed. But here we see the Spirit breathing life, real life. It's no longer about religion and works and what we do. It's about God empowering us with life within us. It's Christ-centered and Spirit-directed. He blows life into us and gives us His power to live. 
And, and that's what we see symbolized in this second scene as the fire comes in. And the fire represents the presence and power of God. The Holy Spirit bursts into the room in a mighty rushing wind and all of a sudden they see fire come down. And the fire throughout the Old Testament represented God's power and his presence. You, you can think back to stories like the burning bush or, or the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the wilderness or, or Mount Sinai when God's presence came upon the mountain. And Moses and the Israelites saw the power of God in the fire over Mount Sinai. And so when God sent the fire on the day of Pentecost, he wanted his people to know that they had received the power that he had promised them. Jesus said last week, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so God wanted there to be no mistake. He sent fire down to show them that the power he had promised was now present within them. Friends, the same power is available to us today when the Holy Spirit lives within you. Thirdly, we see that when the Holy Spirit came, the, the people began to speak in tongues, foreign languages. Now, now, these weren't the tongues that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, those, those ecstatic spiritual languages. These were real tongues, actual languages that the early church began to speak. And we're given here in Acts 2 a list of 15 nations or regions that heard these early Christians speaking in their own native tongues. One commentator I read said that the nations represented here, these 15 nations listed, probably made up over 50 dialects within them. So there were over 50 different languages that were likely being spoken that day. When the Holy Spirit came upon these believers. Very interesting, Pastor Tony Morita, in his commentary in the book of Acts, he talks about a, a friend of his who's a Bible translator with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he was translating the Bible for the Kurdish people up along northern Syria and Iraq and southern Turkey, the, the Kurds who have been our allies in our fight against ISIS the last few years, right? And, and he was working amongst the Kurdish people. But they are a Muslim people. They were resistant to the gospel. And the Kurdish translator he was working with, they were going through Acts chapter 2 and they got to this section where these people started speaking in tongues and he read Parthians and Medes. And he stopped and he said, wait a minute. These people were speaking in, in my people's language? You see, the Kurds traced their ancestry back to the Medes. And this translator recognized that God had poured out his spirit and was speaking the gospel 2,000 years ago in the language of his people. Friends, why did God do that? God poured out these tongues, these languages, to show people from all over the world that the gospel, this revolution we're talking about, represented something that was available to all people now. It wasn't just about the Jews. It wasn't just about the temple and the law. But now the Spirit was available to all people through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a message for all. Friends, what better way for God to communicate that than to speak to this cosmopolitan group of Jews who had come from all over the world for the Feast of Pentecost. And all of a sudden they start hearing their own native tongues proclaiming the message of the gospel. And they were transformed because of this message. We see the movement of the Spirit. It was a powerful movement. 
But, but secondly, in our passage, we also see the meaning of the Spirit. At the end of this episode where these believers are speaking in tongues, some of the Jews are, are compelled to believe. But there's another group of Jews who says, ah, this is ridiculous. These people must be drunk. These people must be drunk. And so what does Peter do? Peter stands up and he says, brothers, look it, we're not drunk, okay? It's only 9 a.m. I mean, give us a few hours maybe, but not now. That's a joke, by the way. I'm just kidding. <laughs> On a feast day, the Jews wouldn't break their fast till 10 a.m. They wouldn't eat or drink until 10 a.m. The third hour of the day was considered 9 a.m. And so Peter's like, look it, we haven't had anything to eat or drink all day. We're not drunk, so what's going on here? What's going on here? And Peter stands up and he delivers one of the greatest sermons of all time. I mean, it's a classic sermon. I mean, it's a textbook three-point sermon. In fact, the only suggestion I would give Peter is maybe work on your alliteration or, or maybe a nice acrostic or something, you know. But uh, that, that would be my recommendation. But, but Peter gives this incredible sermon. He starts out, his first point, he takes them to the prophet Joel. He says, look, we're not drunk. This is exactly what your own prophets told you to expect. What did Joel say? In the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so Peter starts out and says, look, this is just the fulfillment of everything that you've been waiting for. We, we were told to expect this. We were told to expect this outpouring of the spirit. And here it is. And then Peter goes on, and he, he, point number two, he speaks about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And he says to all the Jews present, he says, look it, you were all here. You saw Jesus. You witnessed his miracles. You know this isn't phony baloney that we're preaching here. You know that his tomb is empty. You know that we proclaim him risen from the grave. Last week, we talked about some of the evidence of the resurrection. If you didn't hear the message, go back and listen to that message. But Peter is saying, look at this message that we're proclaiming in your own tongues. All right, this is the truth. It's based on the man, Jesus, that you yourself saw, that you put to death, who is now risen from the grave. And I want you to notice something here. Peter says that, that Jesus' death... It was always a part of the sovereign plan of God. Verse 23, Peter says to these Jews, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. Friends, very interesting verse there. Here we see both the sovereignty of God and the reality of human freedom and responsibility. Friends, do you know that both of those are biblical concepts? The Bible teaches both that God is sovereign and in control of everything that takes place in our world. There's nothing in our world that happens by chance. There's no accidents. Everything that takes place in history is a part of God's sovereign plan. And yet the Bible also teaches that we have moral responsibility, that we are free, and that our choices, our sin, brought about Christ's crucifixion. These things go hand in hand throughout Scripture, God's sovereignty and our freedom. Now, how does that work out? We don't understand it. It's a paradox. But it's the truth. It's what God reveals to us in Scripture. And so Paul preaches from Joel's sermon, his prophecy. He preaches from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Then Paul goes to David, King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. 
And he points out how David himself prophesied the coming of the Messiah. David, the one you guys so admire, David looked forward to Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. And he takes them to Psalm 16. And he says in Psalm 16, David prophesied, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter says here, look at this, couldn't have referred to David. David's not talking about himself because David, his body did see corruption. In fact, we all know his tomb is just down the road from us. You can go to Jerusalem to this very day and see David's tomb. His body is there. He's dead. His bones have decayed. But David had prophesied that you're not going to let your Holy One see decay. And so who was he talking about? Peter makes the point he was talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who conquered the grave and rose from the dead. And then Peter takes them. He takes them to David's prophecy in Psalm 110, verse 1. There David says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord said to my Lord. Friends, that's an interesting phrase. The Lord said to my Lord. This is David reciting this. Friends, who was David's Lord? David was the Lord. He was the king. He didn't call anybody Lord. People called him Lord. But here David says, the Lord says to my Lord. Who was David's Lord? David is talking about the promised Messiah. And David says that the Messiah would sit at the right hand of God. And so Peter takes them through this biblical exposition of the promised Messiah, the reality of the coming of Christ, Jesus' resurrection. He's now seated at the right hand of God. And then Peter says, this Jesus is the one who has poured out the Spirit that you are seeing at work among us today. It's Jesus who did all of this. And friends, what was the result of Peter's sermon? Verse 37 tells us they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted upon hearing the preaching of the word of God and the gospel. Friends, notice here, it wasn't the signs and wonders that brought them to the place of conviction. It wasn't the wind. It wasn't the tongues of fire. It was the pro proclaiming of God's word. It was the preaching of the gospel that brought them to the place of conviction. It was the Holy Spirit working through Peter's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that brought them to the place of repentance. Friends, there's a lesson in that for us today. So many people in our world today are chasing after signs and wonders. Right? We, we want all this supernatural stuff. We, we want to see you know, tongues of fire. We want to we wanna go to faith healers and see healings. We, we want to go to churches and see gold dust falling from the rafters. And there are people who literally spend their whole life chasing after signs and wonders, friends. But I'm going to tell you something this morning. The Bible tells us that the greatest sign is the cross of Jesus Christ. And the greatest wonder is found in the proclamation of God's word. Friends, this is how the Spirit moves people. The power is in the blood and in the word. It was from the very beginning. It wasn't the wind, it wasn't the tongues, it wasn't the fire. It was Peter's preaching of the word that compelled people, that cut them to the heart. Brothers, what must we do? The power's in the word, friends. 
This is why Paul in 2 Timothy 4, preaching, speaking to his young protege, Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, what? Preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. That's all you got to worry about. Preach the word. Don't go worrying about faith healers. Don't go worrying about speaking in tongues. Don't go pursuing these supernatural signs and wonders. Just preach the word. Because that's where the power is found. That's what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. The power is in the word because that's God's revealed truth. And look at verse 41. Verse 41 says, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And notice what's not mentioned here. These 3,000 who came to faith, they weren't speaking in tongues. But they received the Holy Spirit. They were converted. They became followers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit living within, the same power living within. But they weren't speaking in tongues. What does that tell us? It tells us that tongues isn't a necessary sign of our salvation. God empowers each of us through the Holy Spirit. But the sign of tongues was a one-time sign on the day of Pentecost. Okay, never repeated again in history. There's only two other mentions in the book of Acts of people speaking in tongues after receiving the Holy Spirit, and they were far less significant in size or scope from what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Okay, This isn't God's normative pattern of working in the world. He did something special, something unusual, in order to get the message of the gospel out to all nations. But all of us today, friends, we're all empowered with the Holy Spirit. People sometimes ask, well, Jason, if the tongues and the fire, if that's not the greatest miracle on the day of Pentecost, what is? Friends, the greatest miracle on the day of Pentecost, this is point number three, the true miracle of the Spirit is what we see in verses 37 and 47. The day of Pentecost saw all these miraculous signs and wonders of God, but friends, the greatest miracle is what we see at the end of our passage. It's seen in what God did in the lives of these early believers. And what we see here is that this church, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, these early followers of Jesus became an Acts 2 kind of a church. What's an Acts 2 kind of a church, friends? An Acts 2 church is characterized by four things. Number one, apostolic teaching. Verse 42 in our passage says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Friends, this is the primary mark of a spirit-driven church. There will be a hunger for God's word. It's like Peter says in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What's the pure spiritual milk he's talking about? He's talking about the word of God. Long for the word, hunger for the word, spend time in the word, read your word, digest your word, feed on it. This is where the power is. Long for pure spiritual milk, just like your little baby longs for its mother's milk. This is where life is found. This is where growth is found. One of my greatest joys here at Lakes Free is meeting newcomers to our church almost every week back at the back door or out in the foyer after the services, meeting people who have come to our church. And you want to know the number one reason I hear from people who come to Lakes Free? The number one reason I'm hearing from newcomers over and over again is because they're hungry for a church that's preaching the word. Man, 
First of all, what, what a joy that is to have these people come into our church because they're longing to find a church preaching the word of God. But at the same time, it just makes me shake my head in sadness. What is going on out there? What are the other churches teaching? What are they doing? Friends, it's all about the word of God. If you're not in the word, what, what, what on earth are you doing for Pete's sake? We're in the word because that's where life is found. And a spirit-filled life, friends, is a life that's going to be characterized by hunger for God's word. The second characteristic we see of this early church, they, they were a caring fellowship. We see them loving one another, caring for one another, eating with one another, selling their possessions, giving to others who are in need. Friends, understand something. This kind of fellowship just didn't exist before the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word for fellowship here is a word that's not even found in the Gospels. This is the first appearance of this word in the whole New Testament. The, the word for fellowship used here is koinonia. And the word in Greek, koinonia, it means to hold something in common or to share. And you know something? Every single time this word is used in the New Testament, it's always used in the context of sharing. Friends, the early believers were known as a people who shared gladly with one another. They cared for one another. They gave of their possessions. If, they, if, they, if someone was in need, they would sell their possessions and give the funds away because they cared for one another. They were characterized by a radical generosity. Now, there are people who have looked at this passage and they ask, is God promoting socialism here? Were, were these early Christians communists or something? Friends, no, no, no. This is very different between so, what, what God was doing in the early church and socialism. It's not even similar at all. Socialism and communism is about an outside force imposing their will to force the redistribution of wealth. It's about the government telling you that you have to share your wealth with others. You don't have a choice. It's an outside force compelling you. There was no outside force compelling you. Here in the early church, the only compulsion they were under was the compulsion of the Holy Spirit highlighting God's generosity to them. And so these early believers were like, why would I not give away my possessions to help a brother or sister in need? There was no outside force compelling this. This was a radical generosity which was motivated and fueled by the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is something very different. It comes only from a heart that's been moved by God. And it's this kind of radical generosity that characterized the early church from the beginning. Thirdly, we see the, a church participating in transformational worship. Attending the temple together regularly in corporate worship. Celebrating the Lord's Supper, communion. Devoting themselves to prayer. Praising God. Over and over again, we see here a picture of a church, a group of people who, whose lives were characterized by worship. It, it was a lifestyle for them. And friends, why did God give us this model, this pattern of worship? Why, why did he reveal these spiritual gifts to us as being at the foundation of the early church? Well, it, it reminds me of a story I heard about a young lumberjack. He had just gotten a job on a, on a logging site and he was working hard and, you know, doing his due diligence, going to work every day. And on Thursday, as he was heading out of work, the foreman came up and said, hey, young man, here's your check. I'm sorry, we got to let you go. 
And this young man was so flustered. He, what, what, what do you mean? I, I'm working hard every day. And the foreman said, well, I'm sorry. Your production has just dropped. I mean, Monday you were chopping down three to one compared to these other guys, but, but your production, production has just dropped. And the young man, he was so confused. I'm working hard every day. I come early. I work through my breaks. I stay late. And the foreman, sensing this young man's integrity, he, he asked him, he said, have you taken time to sharpen your axe? And the young man said, well, no, I've been too busy working. Friends, what about you? Have you taken time to sharpen your axe? You see, God gave us this model of these spiritual disciplines in the early church because the spiritual disciplines are the hone that give our lives the sharp edge. And when we're not actively engaged in, in transformational worship, attending worship together, celebrating Lord's Supper, devoting ourselves to prayer, praising God, friends, when we're not doing these things, your passion for the Lord begins to wane. Your joy in life diminishes. Your service to the kingdom is blunted. Literally everything in your life that matters most will become harder and give you less joy. That's why God holds up this pattern of transformational worship. You've got to sharpen your axe. Fourthly, we see here in our passage, spirit-empowered witness. How does our passage end? Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, this was a testifying church. They bore testimony to the gospel through their lives, but also through their words. And both of those things are essential if we're going to be a faithful witness to the gospel. We need to let the light shine through our lives, through our speech, through our testimony, how we live. But we also have to speak the words that people need to hear in order to be saved. Romans chapter 10, how will they believe unless they're told? How will they hear unless somebody takes the message to them? Okay, these things go hand in hand, a lifestyle of testifying and speaking the words that people need to hear. Friends, this is what an Acts 2 church looks like. And you know what? This church that we see here in Acts 2, this was no anomaly. This is God's desire for every believer to experience this kind of a church community. And God is still in the business today of creating Acts 2-style churches all over the world. There are people in our world today who would mock the church. They would mock the idea of an Acts 2-style church. And to those individuals, I would just simply say, come and see. Come and see what God's done here at Lakes Free Church. Come and see a Sunday morning with 600 people gathering together to worship for no other reason other than their joy and what Christ has done for them. Come and see young men who used to live in pursuit of worldly pleasures, who have laid down their lives to follow Jesus. Come and see women who were once broken by divorce, now experiencing the fullness of joy in Christ. Come and see men and women battling chronic illness and disease with an unwavering hope in the Lord. Come and see parents grieving the tragic loss of a child, yet walking in the confidence of God's sovereignty. Come and see brothers and sisters in Christ spurring one another on in the midst of trials and temptations. Come and see a pastor who has no business leading a church except for the grace of God. Friends, I'll tell you what the greatest miracle is here in the book of Acts. 
The greatest miracle is when the Holy Spirit comes upon a diverse group of people in their fallenness, in their brokenness, in their rebellion. And he breathes new life into this group of people and they come together under transformational worship. The teaching of the word, caring for one another, testifying to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the real miracle here in the book of Acts. And if you want to see miracles today, I'll tell you what you do. You just look around this room. Look around you. Every single brother and sister in Christ here is a testament to what only the Holy Spirit can do. This is an Acts 2 kind of a church. Now, I'm not saying that this is a perfect church. Okay? The original Acts 2 church wasn't a perfect church. We're going to see that in the coming weeks. But this is a place where the Holy Spirit's at work and he's on the move. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. amen. Friends, if it's going to continue to be an Acts 2 style church, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And we've got to stay rooted and grounded in the mission. It's why at the heart of our DNA we have three words, grounded, growing, and going. Okay, We're a church grounded in truth. We're a church growing in grace and Christ-likeness. And we're a church going in faith. Friends, we can't take our eyes off of those three, three foundational goals. Okay, That's what it's all about. Let's commit to staying an Acts 2 kind of a church. God's given us the Spirit. He's empowered us to do this thing. And now we just have to partner with him and say, God, sign me up. You've given me my marching orders. I'm on board. Let's go. You want to do that with me, friends? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come and you live within us and you've empowered us. You've given us the ability to carry out the mission that Christ gave us. You haven't left us alone. Lord, we thank you that this model that we see here in Acts 2 isn't an anomaly, but that you empower every believer in every church to be an Acts 2 church. Lord, may we continue to join together under the teaching of your word as a church who cares for one another in biblical fellowship, as a church united in transformational worship, as a church living out the Spirit-empowered witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Encourage us, inspire us, empower us, remind us of all that we have in you. Lord, help us to never take for granted the incredible work of the Spirit that's going on around us right here, right now. Friends, this is incredible. Jesus, what a blessing this church is. We take it for granted so often, but the Spirit's at work here. But we're hungry for more. We want more. We want more revival. We want more transformation. And so, Holy Spirit, we would just call on you to once again fill this place. Empower us, convict us, embolden us to be your ambassadors. To take the good news that Jesus Christ has come. He has conquered death. He reigns at the right hand of God. Help us to never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. I want to leave you with these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. All for his glory. God bless you, friends. spoke a word you were singing over me you have been so so good to me